light of infinite. Carrie Fisher used to say, take your broken heart, make it into art. It's incredible how we're able to turn tragedy into triumph, our own dark moments into light and hope for others. Last week we spoke about interconnectedness and there's nowhere we see this more than in art. The stories that are most popular in film and literature play off primary story arcs which include rises, falls, and oftentimes navigating both over and over. A few examples, rags to riches, rise, riches to rags, fall, Cinderella, rise, then fall, then rise, or Oedipus, fall, then rise, then fall. Most stories that resonate play off of this. And this is seen in the Torah too, especially in the story of Yaakov and Yosef. When we bump into a friend or a stranger, we really never know if at that moment they're feeling a rise or a fall. So we have to be graceful at every moment. As I've been writing these dvars, my own story has been facing ups and downs. And when I feel low and go through something difficult that so many of us go through, I can actually think that it has been happening to me to put me into a space to be able to relate and bring light to others. Since I'm actually going through it too, we are all connected. Toward the end of this parasha, Yosef's brothers are scared that because their father passed away, Yosef will finally take revenge on them. They think, perhaps Yosef will nurse hatred against us, and then he will surely repay us and the evil that we did to him. They told Yosef that one of their father's wishes before he died is that Yosef forgive their spiteful deeds. This means that for all the years that Yosef had shown them time and again that he had forgiven them and met them with love, they lived with fear that eventually he would take his revenge. It's incredible how often this plays out in our own lives. The suffix, this doubt and fear which plays in our minds as our personal amalek, the nation and notion that the Torah commands us to eliminate from the world. The Hebrew word safek and amalek have the same gematria of 240. We are commanded to eliminate it because it is the force that makes us fall. It stands opposed to faith and truth, and it's our strongest detractor of bitachon, trust. A few weeks ago, I bumped into someone I had lost touch with. At one point, he was single and I was married. I used to invite him to dinner every Friday night, so he'd never have to eat alone and feel lonely on Shabbat. My ex-wife makes this epic food, and so it was always a blessing to be able to share it. But when I got a divorce, I didn't feel that same support from him. Part of me hoped or expected it. Looking back, in truth, I wasn't inviting him with any motives for him to invite me back one day. It was done out of love. Eventually, I realized that it's often when we have our own high expectations of how something should play out that we are most disappointed with what we receive. This feeling came back around the last high holidays when I felt the pressure of having to figure out my social plans for each of the meals. A few weeks ago, I walked past this person at Trader Joe's, and a part of me wanted to walk past him, but the other part wanted to be open and see where it goes. Immediately, this person expressed how incredible it was seeing me, and that he felt so badly since this one exchange we had, where he had done something wrong, and it was eating away at him. He also told me that he had been speaking with a therapist about it. A lot. He expressed that he was avoiding me because he felt that he had wronged me, and he was embarrassed. Clearly, he was holding on to this feeling, and it was weighing on him. I was shocked because it wasn't something I had thought about or held on to. I said I forgave him when it happened and I truly did. I couldn't believe he was holding on to it to that extent. I explained that the only thing I was still carrying around was the fact that I went so far out of my way when I felt he needed me, but I didn't feel reciprocated. He explained that he felt so badly that he was avoiding me. Only then was I able to relieve that burden by saying I would never actually held on to any of that. All of a sudden, the imagined weight of our burden was lifted. The seeming darkness turned to light, and avoidance turned to infinite possibilities. Yosef's brothers held on to the episode of the pit when he was younger until the day of their father's death. 
Yosef's own actions towards them in return of love and acceptance didn't ever fully give them the relief that they needed, and much of it was because they danced around their doubts instead of addressing them. And so they sent this message to Yosef. Before his death, your father sent these instructions. So shall you say to Yosef, Forgive, I urge you, the offense and guilt of your brothers who treated you so harshly. Therefore, please forgive the offense of the servants of the God of your fathers. And Yosef was in tears as they spoke to him. Chatam Sofer points out that first the brothers are characterized simply as Achecha, your brothers, and then they are elevated to the status of Avdei Elokei Avicha, servants of your father's God. In this one Pasuk, we see that regarding how they treated Yosef, their behavior was not appropriate as servants of Hashem. But since they had done tshuva and regained their status, they were articulating this subtle difference as an attempt to show Yosef that Hashem had forgiven them, so he should do the same. The Chatam Sofer then dives deeper into the Kabbalistic illusions of their wording. When they begin their plea, they use the word Ana, which is an acronym for the first three of the four components of the Merkava. Breaking down the components, there is Ari, a lion, Nesher, an eagle, Adam, man, and the fourth, which is deliberately omitted, is Shor, an ox. Sofer explains that if Yosef did not forgive his brothers, he would be forfeiting his part in the Merkava. And their plea continues when they say, please forgive me, which completes the fourth letter of the anacronym and the four components of the Merkava, with the letter Shin. This teaches us that with forgiveness, Yosef ensures his place amongst the Avot, the patriarchs, as a conduit of the Shekhinah in this world. Communication, forgiveness, and truth are key to shedding light on the doubts that we carry. In Kohelet it says, I saw an advantage to wisdom over foolishness, like the advantage of light over darkness. In the Tanya it teaches the simple meaning of this verse, just as light dispels darkness, so too wisdom dispels foolishness, as the truth tends to always come out in the end. And the deeper meaning is the greater the darkness, the more apparent the light is by contrast. And the same applies to wisdom over great foolishness. The Lubavitch Rebbe in Likutei Sichot relays a teaching of, of the Baal Aturim. Contrary to what one would think, the best years of Yaakov's life were in Egypt. And as we read, And Yaakov lived in the land of Egypt for 17 years. The gematria of Tov, good, is 17. The Baal Aturim reads the Pusik as, Our patriarch Yaakov lived his 17 best years in Egypt. And the Zohar expounds on this, The main life that Yaakov experienced was in Egypt, where he lived with joy and peace. Yaakov's entire life was spent in holiness, and so one would think his time in the Promised Land would be the greatest, if only because his actions, the space he was in, and his goals all become aligned. But in fact, Egypt, because of its impurity and spiritual darkness, brought Yaakov the opportunity to transform, and his light was at a higher level because it dispelled even greater darkness. From that, Yaakov rose above his own spiritual level to the highest level of revealing Hashem's light, even in a space seemingly devoid of it. In our own lives, we need to eliminate Suffolk and our Amalek, the nation and the notion that attempts to force us to turn away from faith and alignment. We have to face these things in our path head on so as to have clarity and reveal truth. Rab Natan of Breslov teaches that the greatest level of joy comes from transforming one's sadness and depression into happiness. Yaakov was able to turn the sadness of exile into joy by focusing on the coming redemption. Yaakov's time in Egypt was his most elevated because of the mercy brought to him by the truth of his sons and of Yosef not only being alive, but by bringing divine light into the darkest of spaces. Torah is rooted in Hashem's essence, and just as the Infinite One transcends the concept of high and low, so too does Torah. Yaakov sent Yehuda before him to prepare a house of study for him, to ensure that coming into Egypt wouldn't lead to a descent into divine service, 
but instead it would provide an ascent and a transformation of the nature of exile. And since the Torah remains unlimited in nature, Yaakov through Torah elevated himself above all the limits of the world, nullifying the concealment of godliness generated by Egypt. Prior to Yaakov wrestling the angel, Hashem revealed himself at a lower level of prophecy, as vision in the night, through dreams which we see with folks like Avimelech, Lavan, and Bilam. But once Yaakov wrestled the angel, once he prepared to face Esav, he was renamed Israel. Yaakov's transformation and closeness to Hashem always came not when he hid in a space of holiness away from the world, but when he faced it, when he put himself in the uncomfortable situation, facing Esav head-on and again going down to Egypt. How do we tap into the faith that regardless of what is happening is for the good, and that it will all be good, so that there's no reason to despair? This is what Yosef tells his brothers in the end. Although you intended me harm, God intended it for the good, in order to accomplish, and as clear as this day, that a vast people be kept alive. So now, fear not, I will sustain you and your younger ones. Then, in the next Pusuk, it says, He comforted them and spoke to their heart. What the brothers didn't realize was the level of emunah and bitachon that Yosef had. They thought he was stewing in anger towards them, awaiting for the moment that he was on top and could finally rub it in their face and exact vengeance on them for that satisfying feeling. But Yosef instead knew all along that if it had happened, it was meant to be, and so he had to keep on his mission to fulfill the will of Hashem. What Yosef was telling them when he said, although you intended me harm, God intended it for the good, was that even if they had evil intentions, since the outcome of being sold was good, they are not liable. Yosef was also showing them that their tshuva was true, and so their sin was turned into a good deed. As Yosef says, Hashem will view my sale as a noble event, enabling the Jewish people to endure a relentless famine. The divine prophecy in the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream drew a picture of purpose for Yosef's descent and journey into Egypt, one that would immediately save his family and so many others from death at the hands of a famine. His own pride aside, it was clear that he was there to secure the future, not of himself, but of everyone that would come after him. Further in the parasha, Yaakov blesses each of the sons, the 12 tribes. And this Zot is what their father told them when he blessed them. The Zohar teaches that Zot corresponds to Malchut, and Rabbi Nachman of Breslov explains that Malchut is associated with holy speech. In that, Yaakov taught his sons that the greatest blessing of all is pure speech, which is connected to the source. This is how we subdue evil and evil speech, which is the impure image of Malchut, the Malchut of impurity. Not only should we intentionally speak good of others and remove negative speech, but we must, when it comes to ourselves, speak only good and think only good. That is what brings blessings. The Arizal expounds on this concept of goodness and compassion, pointing out that Yaakov is referred to as the choicest of the forefathers, implying that his servitude was greater than that of the other fathers. In regards to our holy patriarchs, Avram and Yitzchak, the Arizal teaches that their ways of relating and serving to Hashem contained some element of imbalance, which manifested as an imperfection. Unrestrained love can turn into loving the wrong things, and unrestrained fear can turn into fear of the wrong thing. And we see that although Avram brought Yitzchak into this world, he also brought Ishmael into this world. Likewise, Yitzchak brought Yaakov into the world, but also Esav. Only Yaakov's sons were all considered righteous because only mercy mitigates love and fear, and is therefore more pure and resistant to improper application. Yosef would have been justified in exacting justice of his brothers, that's why they were so fearful, but he chose instead to lean into the fifth of the 13 attributes of mercy, which is, he does not maintain his anger forever. 
Chazal, our sages, explain this from the Pusuk, when you see the donkey of the one you hate stumbling beneath its load. We see that even when you see someone that you hate, you still have to help them. When it says unload, Chazal explained that to mean unloading what is in your heart, what weighs heavy. The moment presents itself as a chance to take an action that will further the distance and heaviness and bring the person closer through an act of love and kindness, which unloads the weight in both people's hearts. When we act with compassion, warmth, and sincerity towards someone who we feel wronged us, we awaken Hashem's merciful attribute, calling that element more into our own world. As we see in most everything in life, balance is instrumental in being in a space of goodness, as too much of one thing throws off the balance of alignment required for peace and blessings to flow. Compassion with each other and ourselves is the one thing we can attempt to overdose on and find that even in those instances, it is not enough. I pray that we go into Shabbat as a taste of the world to come and use the opportunity to strengthen our attribute of compassion, bringing it into the week and to the world at large. Shabbat Shalom. Dive in deeper at lightofinfinite.com.